Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. The trial of the Lord Jesus takes place in, in stages. It began with Pontius Pilate. Oh, it began with the, the Jewish Sanhedrin. Then it goes to Pontius Pilate. Pilate hands over our Lord Jesus to Herod. Uh, and then Herod hands him back to Pilate. Uh, the, the Sanhedrin really is a, a constant voice. The, the Pharisees a constant accusing voice in every scene. We're picking up in verse 6 of Luke chapter 23. Pilate has just declared uh, for the first couple of times that there's no fault in Jesus Christ. And then the Jews have been accusing him fiercely saying that he teaches throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Now verse 6. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they'd been at enmity with each other. Let's seek God's face once again. <clears throat> once more, O King of all, we come to you, to the God who reigns on high, to the Lord enthroned above every throne, to the one who sits in heaven itself, in light unapproachable and full of glory. From, from you, O God, your Son came forth. To us and for us he has come. Help us now to understand again the dignity, the integrity, the beauty of our King, to know him, to love him, to trust him, to serve him. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus Christ is not like the rulers of this world. He is not like worldly kings, and his kingdom is not of this world. You only need to go back a few verses in Luke chapter 22 to verses 25 and 26 when the disciples were arguing about who was going to be the greatest, who should be thought of as uh, having the highest rung on that particular ladder. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. When he was before Pontius Pilate, uh, John tells us that one of the things he had to explain to Pilate when Pilate asked, are you a king then? 
was that though he was a king, that his was not a kingdom of this world, and it did not proceed on the basis of earthly kingdoms. And you could really have no starker contrast between Christ our king and the kings of this world, between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of earth, than the Lord Jesus standing here before this king Herod, Herod Antipas, called elsewhere that fox. Herod is Rome's puppet king in Galilee. That's why when he hears about Galilee, Pilate's ears prick up and he says, well, let's send him then to Herod. He's not truly a Jew, but he would style himself the king of the Jews. He's got the same problem that his father had, the Herod, who when he heard that the king of the Jews was going to be born in Bethlehem, sent soldiers to wipe out every male child two years and under to make sure that he'd covered all his bases in trying to blot out any possible threat to his reign. And Pilate, even though he and Herod are no real friends, sends now Jesus to Herod Antipas in his palace in Jerusalem. And most of the commentators trying to work out the geography suggest that that might have been no more than a 10-minute walk for that group. It's not immediately clear why Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Maybe he thinks of it as a gift to make up the problem that evidently exists between them. They're at enmity with one another. Maybe Pilate, not a man, remember, renowned for his overdeveloped sense of justice, is sloping his shoulders. He knows that Jesus is an innocent man, and it may be that he'd like Herod to take some of the heat. Either way, this is bureaucracy at its finest. Uh, anybody who's ever tried to get uh, some kind of uh, final and clear judgment out of a government department will know what it's like to receive a letter that says, thank you for your correspondence, we've passed you on to another department. And then to get a letter from that department, uh, your issue raises questions that belong to another department. It's the pillar-to-post kind of mentality that seems to be dominating here. Now, Herod's in Jerusalem because he wants to play the Jew. He's not really a Jew, and the Jews know that he's not really a Jew. So going up to Jerusalem for Passover is a good way for Herod to try and display his credentials. But he is a vile man. His whole life has been one of self-indulgence, whimsical cruelty. Uh, you know the, uh, the interaction that he had with John the Baptist who rebuked him because he had stolen his brother's wife. And it, in a fit of lust, he eventually had John the Baptist, a man he acknowledged to be a righteous and a holy man, killed in order to silence his tongue. At this point in the narrative, it feels like reason and righteousness have been utterly abandoned. It's now a catalogue of injustices. The trial has become more of a game. And Pilate and Herod are playing with the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And I want us to look then at the two kings who deal with each other in these few verses. A curious king, Herod, and a confident king, Christ. 
a cruel king, Herod, and a compassionate king, Christ. And then a capricious king, an unreliable king, and a calm king, Christ Jesus. First of all, look at the curious and the confident kings. Herod is gleeful when he sees Jesus. He's exceedingly glad, verse 8. He's been wanting to see this man for a very long time. Now you can go back in Luke's own gospel to see some of that taking place. He's heard many things about him, Luke tells us. In chapter 9 of the same gospel, verses 7 to 9, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by Jesus. This is this same Herod. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, well, I've beheaded John... But who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. So it's been years that Herod has heard these stories about Jesus of Nazareth, and now he's got his chance. He also hoped to see some miracle. And again, Luke has already told us that this is a fairly typical outlook. This is a a fairly typical uh, demand. Uh, Even Satan himself, remember, said, throw yourself off the temple and so prove yourself to be the son of God. And later on in Luke chapter four, you will surely say this proverb to me, said the Lord Jesus to his own people. Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard done in Capernaum, all those things, do them here too in your own country. And he said, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, and to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath. You can turn over too to chapter 11 and verse 16, just giving you a sense here of this building pressure where we've got others who tested Jesus seeking from him a sign from heaven. And in verse 29, he rebukes the crowd. This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. That's the atmosphere then in which the Lord Jesus has been conducting his ministry. And Herod is very much a man of his time and place. He is a mere sensation seeker. Now notice the way that Luke presents him. He had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. I don't know if they still invite magicians to children's parties. Any of you boys and girls been to a a kid's party where the magicians come in? And it's like, okay, now we're going to see the magic show. Now he's going to pull the rabbit out of the hat. Now he's going to do that thing with the bunch of flowers. Now he's going to wave the wand. And Herod's like a big kid. Now I get to see a miracle. Now I get to see what I've been wanting all the way along. Jesus of Nazareth, perform for me. That's not faith. That's a frivolous fascination. Herod's got no real interest in Jesus as the Son of God. What Herod basically wants to see is something like a magic trick. Remember also what our Lord said when he told the story about the rich man and Lazarus. 
when the rich man demanded of Abraham, send Lazarus back from the dead to my brothers, because if he speaks to them, having returned from the dead, surely they'll believe. Jesus had said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. For Herod, it's not about the miracles. He's not going to believe anyway. And so Herod, eager to see some performance, questions Jesus with many words. You get this sense of of relentlessness. This is a man who is used to getting what he wants when he wants it, however he has to get it. Repeated demands, repeated inquiries, pushing him, pressuring him, probing him. I doubt many of us have had interrogation training. Not seen any glimpses of recognition. Perhaps the closest, has anybody ever been questioned by the police? Yeah, a few people. Do you know what it's like to sit there while somebody digs for an answer that you don't have? How difficult it is to remain silent how hard it can be not to incriminate yourself when you're being battered and bombarded by someone who's in your face and wants you to do what they want you to do and to say what they want you to say. He answered him nothing. Again, there's a a splendid, silent dignity here about the Lord Jesus Christ, an exceptional self-control in the face of Herod's demands that Christ perform and that he say what he wants him to say and that he answer all his foolish and empty questions. Now, remember that the neediest beggars never needed to ask Christ. He willingly, quickly, readily, cheerfully bestowed a blessing upon those who came seeking healing for their bodies and mercy for their souls. So don't for one moment imagine here that Christ is withholding anything which Herod is in some way entitled to. But where the neediest beggar readily received what Christ was ready to give, the proudest king cannot demand that Jesus of Nazareth jump through a hoop for him because that's what he wants. Herod's playing games. Jesus Christ is not. Herod wants the performing dog to jump through the hoop. The king of the Jews in truth will not stoop to play his petty games. And perhaps this is the moment at which distinctly, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. That's what's going on here. Herod wants to shear Jesus Christ. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I actually feel more sorry for Herod than for Christ in one sense. Most people would want to be Herod, wouldn't they? The great man who's got everything that he wants. Who's the empty man here? Who's the troubled man here? 
Who's the unfulfilled man here? Who's the, the petty, searching man? Who's the slave to his own imaginations and lusts? It's not the man that we see in the dock. It's the man who's seated on a worldly throne. Herod is a despicable man, but he's also a man much to be pitied because the true king is before him and Herod sees him as not much more than a mere religious magician. You know people like Herod. Dangerously, you might be someone like Herod. There are lots of utterly godless people who are fascinated by religion. Fascinated even by true religion. There, there would be people who would be stunned if they spent perhaps just a few hours amongst us. The things that you do, the convictions that you have, the love that you show, the care that you take of one another, the bonds that bind you together. This is quite incredible. People, you know, an anthropologist was wanting to do a study in religious fervor. I need to look at these people like animals almost. I need to work out what makes these people tick because this just isn't normal. But is there any real appetite to know the God whom we serve? Is there any real hunger and thirst after righteousness? Is there any delight in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, it's not enough for you to sit here this morning curious about Jesus Christ. Unless you are committed to him as a saviour. A little bit of interest in a splash of religion. A little bit of an intellectual study. Even the sensation seeking. When are we going to see something spectacular? Maybe even, when are we going to see the baptisms being done? Maybe people come and say, when is, what, what is it that the Spirit really does amongst you? What are you actually seeking this morning? Are you seeking a sign? Are you seeking a sensation? Or are you seeking the saviour from your sins? My heart breaks because I can think of a woman who used to come here quite a lot and would go out saying, well, I felt so much better today. There is no evidence that she trusted Jesus to save her from her sins. But she'd come because she loved to feel better by a good sermon and some nice hymns and some kind people. Sensations and signs do not save us. It is Jesus, the King of Kings, who saves all who trust in him. And he stands confident before this curious king who's a slave to his own appetites and desires. That brings us to the contrast between a cruel king and a compassionate king. Because these games aren't enough for the Pharisees. Remember we've said theirs is a voice that keeps cropping up. And it's there in verse 10 again. The chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. 
You can imagine, can't you? Herod's playing these mind games with Jesus of Nazareth, or at least he thinks he is. I want to see a sign. I want to see a miracle. Tell me about this. Tell me about that. What are they saying? What are you doing? And the Pharisees are getting more and more wound up. And they begin vehemently to accuse him. Now, we've had this kind of thing back in verse 5. They were the more fierce, these vague accusations that are just the, the outflow of their angry hearts. He stirs up the people. He's teaching them stuff. It's, it's so petty. We're not quite sure what they say. We just know here that they vehemently accused him. Again, it's passion over precision. It's, it's just the force of their argument is, is all noise and spit and sweat. The louder they shout, the more they want to be heard. And they swallow up the silence of the dignified and true king. And you know what Herod does? Herod stoops to the occasion. Now remember, Pilate's already declared the Lord Jesus Christ to be innocent, which is one of the emphases that Luke's bringing over and over again. What has Herod seen that in any way condemns Jesus Christ? He has not answered him. He simply refused to play Herod's game. Is Herod offended by Christ's royal dignity? After all, if you're used to bullying people with your anger and your lust and your demands and you don't get your way, you know how angry that makes people. You try saying no to someone who's used to hearing yes and you see how you know, they're spitting chips before long. They're so, how dare, who do you think you are? Maybe that's Herod here. Maybe he's just got tired of the game. That's the kind of man he is. Like a kid who's, played with a toy and broken it already and now he just throws it off to one side whatever may be the reason Herod's curiosity now bleeds into contempt and Herod decides to put on his own show the magician isn't performing this messiah isn't jumping through the hoops so Herod will play his own game and it's so ugly the sense is that Herod is the ringleader. We're not sure if these are his soldiers or his, his followers, his men of war. It's difficult to know exactly what Luke has in mind. But Herod takes the lead with all those who are gathered here in his palace. And we read, he treated him with contempt and mocked him. This is utter disdain and ridicule this is a further assault upon the body and the soul of our lord jesus christ and again luke doesn't go into a great deal of detail we don't know how much of physical abuse is in this but certainly this this spiritual mental emotional assault the christ who stands so calm and considered, so confident in their midst. And they arrayed him in a gorgeous robe. Herod sends someone and says, find that old thing that sits in the back of my wardrobe. You know, the one I haven't worn for a while. But I want it to be one of my snazzier ones. I want, I want it to be gorgeous. There's a, there's a sense here of brightness. Maybe it's bright white. Maybe it's, it's a gorgeous colour. This is what Herod thinks kingship is about dressing up and so he's going to dress up the king of the jews now bear in mind what christ already looks like after a night suffering at the hands of the sanhedrin and the soldiers of pilate and this battered man who has stood before herod in silent dignity 
standing as a king while the other plays like one of the rulers of the world. He clothes him like a king and sends him back to Pilate. And the whole point of Herod's game is that you should look at the robe and then you should look at the man wearing the robe and you should think, what a joke. What nonsense is this? What an utter folly. My word, Herod's really... <laughs> you can imagine Herod patting himself on the back. I'm so sharp. Uh, this, is, this is wit of the highest degree for Herod. Look at him. And I put a king's robe on him. The man who thinks of himself as the king of the Jews mocks the king of the Jews in accordance with his own petty, carnal notions of kingship. And as he does so, the king of the Jews, who has come to save his people from their sins, stands there in silent dignity, suffering all that was written about him. He shall grow up before the Lord as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him remember his utter human aloneness at this point and here he is with the Jews with the Romans now with Herod Antipas and this my friends is for us when you think of those portions in God's word where that for us language is used. These are the scenes that should come to your mind. These are the sufferings leading up to his death upon the cross. These are the assaults on his whole humanity. These are the batterings of the evil one and those who belong to him. And this he does on behalf of his people. He cannot save us unless he submits himself to such suffering. You understand now why we said what was going on in the Garden of Gethsemane is so important. These battles were won then when he wrestled with God, when an angel came to strengthen him, when the prospect of all these things culminating in his death upon the cross was pressing in upon his soul and he was crying out, Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And then the triumph. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And it is with that then compassionate commitment to his people and that utter conviction that he will go as he has been sent that our Lord stands and suffers the mocks, the assaults, the scorns, the disdain, the beatings and the bruisings and ultimately 
the death on the cross. You know what's horrible here? There doesn't seem to be a single moment when it crossed Herod's mind to release Jesus. Pilate sent an innocent man to him. I find no fault in this man. Herod, despite imagining himself a king, doesn't seem to have raised the question once of what is just and right and good and fair. As far as Herod can tell, this is what he's doing to an innocent man that the Jews hate. And maybe this is just more of his pandering to them, a bit like Pilate. We've got to keep these people on side. This is what makes me look good. For Herod also, the innocence of Jesus is just no longer an issue. Now, we said that we pity Herod. We should be very afraid for Herod. Because not long before this, another man, a mere human being, himself sinful, but nevertheless described as righteous and holy, had stood before Herod Antipas. His name was John. They called him the Baptist. And Herod feared John because he was a just and a holy man. Herod feared John because Herod could see John's relationship to God and Herod understood John's fearlessness before men. Herod could see that John was not a man easily cowed because John stood before God and with a clear conscience John spoke the truth even to men like Herod. And Herod protected John for a while because Herod was afraid. Herod's conscience seems to have been utterly seared by the, the occasion with John. There came that time when Herodias had her daughter dance before this man. And Herod, inflamed with lust, said, What do you want? Up to half my kingdom. Give me the head of John the Baptist on a plate. And Herod was disappointed but he couldn't back down. So he sent and they beheaded that man in prison whom Christ describes as the greatest of men. You need to be very careful how you treat God's servants and God's words. Because if you keep disdaining, if you keep dismissing, if you keep casting off, then your conscience is going to become harder and harder and harder. Now, humanly speaking, you will never bow the knee to Christ unless Christ himself takes your heart in hand. But humanly speaking, to resist the truth and to become accustomed to the preaching of God's gospel means that your heart can become so tough so cold, so dull. John had already preached Jesus to Herod, but now Jesus stands before Herod, and Herod's curiosity quickly turns to contempt. Beware that decline. 
Beware curiosity becoming contempt. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. You've got now a capricious king and a calm king. Herod's a human roller coaster. He's up and he's down. A man governed by his whims. A man governed by his moods. A man governed by his lusts. A man governed by his rages. A man governed by his fears. Herod is not a self-controlled man. What Herod wants, Herod gets, at least in his own mind. And when he is crossed, then Herod flies into a fit of rage. He is ready to bend and to buckle and to demand as long as he gets what he wants. He was glad when he saw Jesus. And then that turned to frustration when the Lord Jesus wouldn't play his miracle game. And then it turned to disdain. All that in the space of perhaps an hour or two. What an unstable man. What a dangerous man. He and Pilate had been at enmity with one another. Now maybe that's because Pilate took matters into his own hands. Remember Pilate slew those Galileans who came to make their sacrifices. Maybe that's what lies behind this. Maybe it's just that Pilate's the Roman ruler in Jerusalem and Herod, who thinks he should be the king of the Jews, is shuffled off to Galilee under the Roman authority. But this makes it up. I mean, Herod really is a childish man, isn't he? Not childlike. We know that childlikeness in dealing with Jesus is a good thing. Herod is a childish man, and too many grown-ups today are childish men and women. They have never learned to act like adults, still less like adults who are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Herod is like a kid on the playground. You boys and girls ever had that? Oh, you're my best friend today. Oh, no, we don't like you anymore tomorrow. You don't know whether you're coming or going. And you don't with Herod Antipas either. Herod was an enemy of Pilate, but he sends him Jesus. And they play this prisoner ping pong. And after that, they're friends. Both of them abusing a man that they know to be innocent. When the disciples thought about this, when they prayed in Acts chapter 4 about what had happened to the Lord Jesus, they saw this as a fulfillment of the second psalm. The nations of the world gathering together and setting themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. Here, Christ brings not so much peace between God and men, but he becomes the, the focus of peace between these ungodly men. The unity of enmity. People who hate each other will join their forces to fight against Christ and his kingdom. The hatred of the world is normal. Who hates the truth as it is in Jesus? False religion. 
who hates the truth as it is in Jesus, non-religion. Who hates the truth as it is in Jesus, irreligion. You talk to anybody who doesn't know God as he's made known in Christ and there is antagonism toward this. We heard earlier of the kind of response when Christ comes first. And you've got a whole culture and families who say, but no, we come first. You see it when you've got the, the so-called new atheists and they're, they're attacking and they're assaulting and they're, uh, they're dismissing. You'll see it in school. You'll see it in your workplace. You'll see it in your family. If you hold fast to Christ, if you live as Christ, then it really, in one sense, doesn't matter what else others believe. It's what they don't believe. And it's what they won't believe that unites them against the truth. And in the midst of it all stands Jesus Christ. Some of the commentators describe him like a pawn on the chessboard, just being moved around by greater powers. Pilate pushes him over to Herod. Herod pushes him back to Pilate. The Jews shove him this way and this way. The, the Sanhedrin are, are bullying him back and forth. My friends, Christ is no pawn in some great game. Christ is the one who goes as it was written of him. Remember what he was like in the garden. Remember how he stands before Pilate. He declares his identity, I am, and they fall before him. Before Pilate, he says, if I were a king like the kings of this world, my followers would fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. And I don't play games like the kings of this world. Pilate says, don't you realise I have power over you? And the king responds, you could have no power unless it were given to you from above. You see, Christ knows who he is. And Christ knows what he is about. And compared to Herod the human roller coaster, here is Christ the divine rock. And he goes as it is written, and he goes as it is instructed. These traumatic events, and let's not imagine that they're not. And people use that language so carelessly to, oh, they're so, so traumatic. This is traumatic. But it doesn't disturb the stability of a man who knows that God reigns in heaven. In the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 2, just to give you one example, just a, a beautiful way of phrasing some of these things. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus Christ knows that. He knows who he is and he knows what he does. And he understands then that all of these events do not for one moment disturb the divine purpose. And they can no longer disturb the divine person who has anchored himself to the works and the will of his Father in heaven.
Now, if you are a Christian, you will, I doubt, ever face something like Christ faced, even in this regard. But you will face accusations, insults, assaults, underminings. They will try and play games with you. Who do you follow? How do you respond when falsely accused? What will you do when they attack you? I read something this week. Uh, it was a casual comment. I'm not reading too much into it. But we, we were at a conference. And uh, I was chairing one of the sessions. And somebody had come in. And I didn't recognize them. I didn't realize that they uh, had not paid to be in the conference. They weren't part of the conference. They didn't understand the conventions of the conference. And they got their hands on the microphone. And they stood up and they shouted at us for about five, ten minutes, haranguing us, accusing us, dismissing us, and all in the name of Jesus Christ. And somebody that I know and respect said, when you get shouted at for ten minutes, it's hard not to shout back. When you are shouted at, slandered, accused, insulted, Dismissed, disdained, mocked, and scorned. It is hard not to react. But you have a Saviour who, when he was reviled, he did not revile again. And the same Spirit which was in him, by his saving grace, is in us, brothers and sisters. That stately dignity, that unwavering intent, that face like a flint has been revealed not just in Christ, but in many of his people down through the ages who with calmness, with confidence, with compassion have stood before their accusers, even their persecutors, even their killers and have thought like Christ have held their tongues like Christ, have, when necessary, spoken graciously like Christ, and when the time comes, have died for Christ. My friends, what kind of king do you have? And what kind of king do you serve? These two men, Pilate and Herod, they have both failed to condemn Jesus of Nazareth. Now, by a Jewish standard... That's innocence. Two witnesses are saying that this Jesus has done no wrong. And yet Pilate is ready to send him to the cross. Herod's ready to treat him with contempt and disdain, to put this gorgeous robe on him and send him back to Pilate as just part of this ugly game. What kind of king do you have? What kind of king do you want? What kind of kingdom do you want to belong to? See, if you live in this world, you have kings like Herod, kings like Pilate. Now, I know we like to set up our fairy stories. I, I, I know we like to have our good guys and our bad guys. And I'm not saying that all kings are as bad as all other kings and all rulers are as terrible as all other rulers. And God, in his mercy, sometimes restrains, does restrain the, the, the worst. 
But at its best, sleaze, compromise, broken promises, whimsicality. I don't know what you think of Quasi Quateng. He seems to me to be a decent fellow. And he said, was it just yesterday or Friday? I got carried away. The Putins and the Stalins and the Hitlers. What about the Johnsons and the Trusses and the Sunaks? What about even the Zelenskys? My friends, sinful men and women. Unreliable men and women. Men and women who, when tempted and tested, will fail again and again and again. Do you want the world's rulers and the world's rule? I want a king like this. I want a king of purity, a king of nobility, a king of dignity, a king of glory, a kingdom that is not of this world. Herod stands before you. Christ stands before you. Who do you want? Who will you serve? Who will you have? Who will you follow? See, the short-sighted man says, but Herod's on the throne. Herod's got spare gorgeous robes. Herod can play his games. Your king, your king is suffering. Your king is dying. But you say, yes, but I know who he is. I know what he does. By the grace of God, I know what happens next. Herod comes to nothing. If I'd said Herod to you at the beginning of the service, might you have thought, is that the guy who did that Bethlehem thing? No, it's not even him. How many of us remember Herod today, Herod Antipas, or his father, or his brother, or any of the other mucky bunch of them? Except as ugly bit players on the stage of God's salvation worked out. Have you grasped who the true king is? And have you trusted him? Have you bowed to him? Have you determined God helping you to follow him? Humble, merciful, faithful, drinking the cup of wrath that his people might not suffer and die.